0: Tonight, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to focus on verse 13, perhaps 14, maybe even 15. In a message, I'm entitling your battle armor. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 13, we read, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Last week, we looked at the warrior's adversary, Satan, and all of his hosts. You'll remember he said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this present age. The hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Now we look at the warrior's armor. In verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand. When it begins with the word, therefore, I've said this repeatedly, you look and see what it's there for. It alludes to everything that has been said in verses 10 and 11. And so what Paul says, in light of what I've already told you, Remember that you have a supernatural foe, verse 12. Remember that the fight is personal, the struggle is ongoing. Paul repeats the admonition that he's already given to us in verse 11. We take up the whole armor of God. And remember the reason why he repeats the admonition is because every piece is vital, every piece is critical. All the pieces are essential. And so when he says take up the whole armor, remember, and put it on, we've already learned that putting it on means putting it on and never taking it off. We might use the term put it on and leave it on. The armor is linked to our salvation experience and the sanctification process. We take up the whole armor for the express purpose of being able to stand. And remember what we have already talked about. We stand in the territory that's been assigned to us by God. Remember, it's a military term, which means that this is the space that I have assigned to you. And the space that's been assigned to you is your life and everything that goes on in your life. So we take up the whole armor for the purpose of being able to stand. We stand in the territory that's assigned to us. We stand, listen carefully, having appropriated. That means having taken full advantage. Having taken full advantage of the power of God and the provision of God. And by the way, every day is the evil day since the fall, therefore taking up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Every day has the taint or the stain of sin. Every day is the evil day until the evil one is permanently cast Into the lake, which burns with fire and brimstone, according to the book of Revelation, which is the second death. We submit to God. We resist Satan in our armor. We stand firm. When Martin Luther stood before the Diet of Worm, he was accused of heresy. He was condemned by the Roman Catholic Church for declaring that men are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It was at that time that the Catholic Church had effectively hidden the word of God from the people. And this is one of Satan's ploys. And, and part of what you need to come to grips with, whether it's in the 1st century or the 15th century or the 21st century, Satan acts in similar ways in every generation. In every generation, he's going to try to hide the word of God from you. So how, how is the word of God hidden in our generation? It isn't hidden because of the availability of the Bible, You can go anywhere and get a Bible. You can go online and get a Bible. The the Bible is everywhere. The way it's hidden is by perverting it and distorting it and then claiming that it doesn't actually have value. Luther said, quote, my conscience is captive to the word of god here i stand i cannot do otherwise unquote every believer who's faithful to god's word will stand will resist will fight it reminds me of something i heard this week from another bible teacher who was talking about prayer and he said a, a prayer something like this thank you lord That today I have honored you. I haven't sinned. I haven't spoken evil of anyone. I have submitted to you. I've resisted the the devil. And now I want to walk in the light. And now, Lord, even even though I know I just woke up. (laughs) Now I've got to go forward in the day. Every believer who's faithful to God's word must sit before he or she walks and must walk or must stand before they walk. And you must walk before you run. Remember, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against the supernatural forces against, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul wrote, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So the Holy Spirit works in the children of the Lord. The Holy Spirit works in the men and women who have embraced Jesus. The spirit of disobedience works in Satan and his minions. Works in the lives of unbelievers. And also works in the lives of unsuspecting believers who aren't submitted to the Lord. Paul argues that it's foolish, that it's a waste of time to oppose flesh and blood when the invisible forces are using flesh and blood to thwart the will of God, to obstruct the will of God, or to take advantage of the plan of God. Peter tried to resist the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane by using a sword. Moses Protested the wicked treatment of his brothers in Egypt and slew an Egyptian in Acts chapter 7, verse 23 through 29. When Stephen is giving the long litany of the history, people in every age have tried to resist the devil and promote God's plan by ways other than the spiritual ways. We fight spiritual enemies with spiritual weapons. The word of God and prayer. And so we have to be on guard and aware of Satan's tactics in verse 11. The wiles of the devil, his strategies. Satan is the ruler of darkness and he will use darkness. Here darkness becomes a metaphor for ignorance and lies and accusations. So the armor is for personal protection against Satan and protection for the battle. When we leave any area unprotected, we give Satan a foothold. The sword of the spirit is the actual offensive weapon that's been issued. And you might be thinking, because I know there are people who think these thoughts, you know, this is all religious hyperbole. This is exaggeration. There's no devil. There's no war. There's no conflict. You are making up a make-believe battle with a make-believe enemy. And so this is make-believe armor. And these are make-believe weapons. But nothing could be further from the truth. You couldn't be more wrong. The Bible teaches that the enemy is real. The conflict is real. The the writer says, and the devil roams. He prowls, searching for prey. Satan is waging an invisible war in heavenly places. His plan? To put distance between you and God. And destroy lives. And populate hell. So Paul will draw our attention to our battle gear, our equipment. Why? Because Satan is looking for the unguarded Christian. He's looking for the person who is vulnerable to attack. He's looking for the person who will ignore what's being said, who will blow off or find reasons or difficulties or or problems or issues. Satan isn't usually able to land a lethal blow or a mortal blow, but rather seeks to land a crippling blow, a disabling blow. The chances are that that even though he tries to kill you, what's far more effective is to hurt you, to wound you. To incapacitate you. The emphasis in this passage, and this is important, is both on the completeness of the provision and then the divine nature of the equipment in which you've been given. In every way, this is spiritual armor. Remember, Jesus has defeated our foe, Satan. It's by faith that we accept what God has given to us. Again, we submit to God. We resist the devil. And so Warren Wiersbe writes, the day is evil and the enemy is evil. But if God before us, who can be against us? And that's so true. Roman soldiers wore other essentials for war. One item that they wore is called greaves. Greaves were protective shin guards. These were like um, what a goalie wears when he's protecting the net. If you've ever seen a goalie suited up, he has a mask and he has something over his chest and he has something over his knees. But Paul is going to focus on six essential items. Number one, the soldier's belt. Number two, the soldier's breastplate. Number three, the soldier's sandals. Number four, the soldier's helmet. Number five, wait, number three, the soldier's sandals. Number four, the soldier's shield. Number five, the soldier's helmet. Number six, the soldier's sword. And so what he's going to do is he's going to pull back the curtain and we're going to be able to peek into the armory. We're going to look at the belt, the breastplate, and the sandals if we have time. Or truth, righteousness, and peace. Next week, shield, helmet, sword, or faith, salvation, and the offensive weapon of the well-equipped saint, the sword of the Spirit. So in verse 14, at the beginning, the belt of truth. Stand, therefore. In other words... Don't give up the ground that's been assigned to you. Stand, having girded your waist with truth. Now the first item in a Roman soldier would put on was a girdle or a belt that held everything in place. I think what I'm going to try to do in the future is give you pictures of these Roman soldiers articles so that you can see. Paul likens this girdle or belt of truth that surrounds and binds the Christian's equipment. So all the rest of the equipment has little value unless there is a secure place to hold it in place. And so this belt was like almost like a weightlifter's belt. If you've ever seen a weightlifter's belt that's sometimes four, five, six inches thick, and it would be, would have been made of strong leather. And on this belt would have hung an apron, just like a kitchen apron. The apron would have hung in front of the Roman soldier's groin and lower abdomen. Small brass plates were attached to this apron to provide the greatest possible protection. And so you can imagine, this piece of equipment holds all of the other equipment together. So... The Roman soldier has his tunic on. He puts this belt on like a police officer's belt. But also, it's close to the body. It protects the most sensitive and vulnerable parts of the body. And so the Bible teaches that God is a God who is both true and reveals truth. We live in a culture and a society that doesn't believe that there is such a thing as truth. You know, I love history, and I study civilizations. And the most important civilizations that I study are those ones that relate to the Bible, like the Babylonian Empire, like the Greek Empire, the Persian Empire, the Roman Empire. Do you know what all of those empires had in common? Each and every one of them had a deep sense of religious truth. You are living in a culture, the first civilization ever, that has detached itself from religion and from truth. 70% of the people in our country don't believe in such a, that there is such a thing as truth. 70% of the Christian people, self-identified Christians, contemplate, speculate that there may not be something known as objective truth. Now, this is a huge problem in our culture and society because the moment that you think, isn't there anything? Is there is there something that's true? Is it true in every age, for every people, in every circumstance? The Bible says yes. In John chapter 16, verse 13 Again, the Bible teaches that God is a God who is both true and reveals truth. He, it says in John 16, 13, however, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of truth, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And, and he will tell you things to come. In other words... The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. He speaks to us on behalf of God. He points us to Jesus. Pause for a moment. Because what I'm about to say is maybe one of the most important things that I have to say. Christianity is meaningless unless it's true. I'm going to repeat that. Christianity is is meaningless unless it's true. Remember what Christianity teaches, that there is a God, that God created the heavens and the earth, that everything that exists exists because God played a part in it. So, the Bible teaches the truth about origins if you don't believe the truth about origins, if you don't believe the truth that the universe is created by God, if you don't believe the truth that God created human beings in the image and the likeness of God, if you don't believe that God created them male and female, you'll note that the whole culture will swarm up on the opening few sentences in the book of Genesis and say, No, there is no God. Evolution explains the existence of reality. And if there is a God, he's probably unknowable. And so the moment that you begin to entertain the notion that what the Bible says about reality is true, that God is going to send a Savior because of the problem of sin... Is the Bible really true? Can truth be known? Is the gospel rooted and grounded in the truth? And over and over again, I've tried to help you understand what that word means. Remember, truth is more than just that which corresponds with reality. Truth is immutable, which means it's not subject to change. Truth is incorrigible, which means it's not subject to perfection. Truth is never in transition. And so when the Bible says that God is true, it doesn't say he's in the process of becoming more true or less true. We sing a song. You, you will never change. So truth is incorrigible, which means it's not subject to perfection. Truth is never in transition The truth doesn't change with new discoveries or additional information. So based on that definition, truth is immutable, not subject to change, incorrigible, not subject to perfection, we discover that there are three things that are totally, irrevocably, understandably, always true. The Father, the Son, And the Holy Spirit. We know Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews chapter 13, 8. Um, John 17, 7 says, sanctify them by your truth. Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, your word is truth. And so that gives us the fourth thing that is forever true. Everything that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit says is irrevocably true in Hebrews chapter 11 verses or in Hebrews chapter 1 verses 11 and 12 it says they will perish but you remain and they will all grow old like a garment like a cloak you will fold them up and they will be changed but you are the same and your years will not fail the writer of Hebrews says other things change things change people change the planet changes There is one thing that is not subject to change. It is our heavenly father. It is our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the spirit of God and the word of God. And so part of the point that Paul is making is without truth, we are helpless and vulnerable. We can't face our enemy if truth is relative subjective, unknowable, uncertain, unclear. Because remember what we've already learned. The Bible says that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. And so the Christian who knows the truth won't be deceived. Truth is the antidote, if you will. When we embrace lies or tell lies, we drop our weapon and then we lay hold of the enemy's chief weapon. Lies are like hand grenades with the pin pulled. What happens if you pull the pin? It will explode. Satan is the father of lies. He's the master of deception. And so, again, I want to point something out to you. I I could talk about this forever, but I need to point out to you the chief focus of Satan's lies. His lies focus on the revelation of God. In other words, what God has said about himself and his word. So the lies of Satan focus on the revelation of God, the nature of God, and the character of God. The very first lie that was ever spoken in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, is Has God really said? In other words, the very first thing that Satan focuses on is the revelation that God gives himself concerning Adam and Eve. And so Satan is the father of lies, he's the master of deception. And when we embrace lies or tell lies, In a metaphorical sense, we remove the belt and we throw it into the dirt and we leave ourselves completely exposed. We drop our sword because how can you wield the sword of truth in the scabbard of deception? Those who manage to stand firm are those who know the truth and love the truth and tell the truth. So according to Martin Luther's biographers, Luther memorized a great deal of the New Testament in Latin. John Wesley stood against the religious establishment in England and changed the course of history in Western civilization. He memorized the New Testament in the Greek text. Effective soldiers are bound by the truth. They want to know the truth. They love the truth. And so those who are bound by truth, objective truth, can in spiritual warfare live out the truth in their lives. The point that Paul is making in this passage is this. Those who traffic in the truth, those who are bound by the truth in their character and conduct will be a light. In the darkness, they'll be able to fight. And I need to remind you of something. The truth doesn't come easy to human beings. Remember, Satan is the father of lies. He is a liar by nature. I wish I could tell you that human beings have a predisposition to tell the truth. That would be an untrue statement. By the way, do you have to teach a child to lie or do they sort of figure it out on their own? We are born addicted to lying and lies. Consider the following rejection notice. I'm writing, so I've been re- looking up rejection notices. This is by a Chinese publishing company to a British author. We have read your manuscript with boundless delight. If we were to publish your paper, it would be impossible for us to publish any work of a lower standard, and as it is unthinkable that in the next thousand years we shall see its equal, we are to our regret compelled to return your divine composition and beg you a thousand times to overlook our short sight and timidity. Yeah, why can't they just say, rejected? Chuck Colson in his book, Who Speaks for God, makes a compelling case for those who would substitute words and their meanings in order to make excuses for immoral behavior He writes, quote, the inability to make moral distinctions is the aids of the intellectuals, an acquired immune deficiency. Moral blindness of this caliber requires practice. It has to be learned. In a culture infected with moral aids, words lose all meaning or they are manipulated to obscure meaning. Thus, taxes become revenue assessment enhancements. Perversion is gay. Murder of unborn children is freedom of choice. Marxism in the church is called liberation theology. These are all good words. And he has a parenthetical note. In the Nazi era, quote, the final solution had a nice ring to it also, unquote. And everyone just nods unquestioningly. But when words lose their meaning, it is nearly impossible for the word of God to be received If sin and repentance mean nothing, then God's grace is irrelevant. And typically we will define sin as missing the mark, or going off the path, or defying authority. Even Christians will define sin as missing the mark, going off the path, or defying authority. But they fail to add the sentence, it is Missing the mark established by God's holiness. It's going off the path that God has assigned. It's in rebellion against God's authority. You see, sin isn't just the failure or a failing to do what's wrong or a failure to do what's right. Sin is an imposition on God. God. So if sin and repentance mean nothing, Colson writes, then God's grace is irrelevant. You won't experience God's grace if you don't think your sin is real. If you have no concept of what repentance means. He writes... Our preaching falls on deaf ears. The moral deafness leads to disaster. The scripture tells us it was when people accepted King Ahab's gross evils as trivial that fearsome judgment befell ancient Israel, unquote. Many of our nation's leaders and church leaders have fallen because of lies. Television and radio advertising have institutionalized deceit. (laughs) There was one ad that used to be on my program that would drive me nuts. This lady would come on and say, I racked up tens of thousands of dollars in credit card debt. She said, I used my credit card as income. And I'm going, when you live in a world where debt is income and income is debt, then you pervert the whole concept of debt and income. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 25, it says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor For we are members of one another. Paul has already made the argument that we should tell each other the truth because we belong to each other. Elsewhere in the book of Corinthians, Paul says, we being many are one body. We're joined and fitted together. What happens to you happens to me. And those who continue in lies are spiritually vulnerable, impotent. You can do little other than pray for them and tell them the truth. And so we have to fill our hearts with the word of God in order to tell the truth. It was Thomas Kempis who said, without the way, there's no going. Without the truth, there's no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. And so in order to deal With Satan's chief weapon, your chief response is going to be the response that Jesus gives, both in Mark and Matthew, when the devil comes to tempt him. He responds with the word of God. And then the breastplate of righteousness, look what it says at the end of verse 14. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is the covering that goes in the front of the body that covers the vital organs. The Roman soldier had a, press, a breastplate of a metal interlocking chain, almost like a suit of chain mail, and sometimes it was made of dense leather. The typical breastplate covered both the front and the back, very much like a Kevlar vest or a flak jacket. So the purpose of the breastplate was to protect the soldier's vital organs when attacked. It's sort of like if you're ever watching crazy television shows and you see a person get shot, and in your mind you're thinking, I hope they're wearing their vest. This is that. If a soldier was attacked, the purpose of the breastplate was to protect the soldier's vital organs. So if a soldier failed to wear his breastplate, An arrow could easily reach the soldier's chest, pierce the heart, pierce the lungs. A a spear thrust could become a fatal wound. In Isaiah chapter 59, the Lord puts on righteousness as a breastplate and goes to battle against injustice and corruption. He restores peace in the land. This, This statement probably comes from Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17, where it says, For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak, unquote. So our most vital organ, our heart. It's righteousness that guards our hearts. And so what what is Paul saying? The breastplate symbolizes our righteousness or our right standing with God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so God offers his own righteousness to every believer in Jesus Christ. And and so now we begin to understand something. When Paul talks about not having a righteousness of his own, that means if righteousness means having a right standing with God, What provides you with a right standing with God? The thing that provides you with a right standing with God is the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross where Jesus bears our punishment. He bears our penalty. According to the Bible, Jesus takes our unrighteousness and then imparts to us his righteousness. Imagine if that truth is threatened. I want you to pause for a moment and think about it. The only, the only, the singular provision that God has made for your sin is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And this is going to cause the most difficulty in your world. And in this culture. And in society. If there's one thing that makes people angry. It's the Christian's claim that it is the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. That makes us right with God. That does away with our sin. That gives us the ability to have a right relationship with God. Now we go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. And remember what I told you. That Satan wants to lie about everything that the Bible says is true. About the order of creation. About the fall. About the necessity of redemption. The whole Bible is a book about how God is going to walk through time and history and come to a place in Rome that he is going to be born of a virgin, that he is going to live the perfect life, that he is going to die a substitutionary death for you, and that he is going to come back to life. And so you can imagine that this is Satan's playground as he tries to pervert and distort righteousness. So what does it mean to put on righteousness? Paul says, and to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And I'm here to tell you that the only righteousness that comes from God is the righteousness that comes by faith. So apparently there's a kind of righteousness which comes from the law. The righteousness having done something right instead of having done something wrong. And so there's a kind of righteousness that can only come through Christ. And so Paul is going to argue that keeping the law can't save you. That keeping the law is only going to show that you are a lawbreaker. And that you need a savior. So we live in a world. Where sin seems normal. And righteousness seems strange. David Wells wrote that in a, in a book called Losing Our Virtue. We live in a world where sin seems normal. And righteousness seems strange. Because remember. Remember. Just how normal sin is. Sin is what everybody does. Sin is the statement that you yourself have made. Nobody's... Oh, you know the word. Nobody's perfect. You, someone said it. If you've ever said, nobody's perfect, you have conceded what the world knows. Unless, of course... For whatever reason, all of a sudden something comes up in your heart and your mind where you go, well, wait a minute, there is one person who's perfect. The Lord Jesus Christ is perfect. He never sinned. He never did anything wrong. There, There was no thing that he ever did that ever offended God, that ever broke the law. He was the one person who lived a life of virtue and perfection. And so at the end of verse 15, it says, or at verse 15, it says, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the word for preparation or readiness can be translated a prepared foundation. So think about it this way. Having shod your feet with a prepared foundation for the gospel of peace. It's a firm foundation. The way that I think that Paul is using it, is he's using it in the same way that in the ancient world you would talk about paved Roman roads. I've been to Rome. I have seen the paved roads in Turkey and Syria and Israel. There's, there's remnants of these paved roads that still exist to this day. And so the paved Roman roads provided a firm highway for marching. And so the Roman soldier wore shoes or sandals that contained spikes or nails to grip the ground. They were like track cleats or golf shoes that you dig in and you stand firm. Now, these aren't very good shoes for charging forward. These are very bad shoes for retreating quickly. In fact Josephus tells if a centur of a centurion who because he was running after his enemies while wearing quote shoes thickly studded with sharp nails unquote he slipped and fell on his back on the stone pavement I know what this is like. I've been on these stone pavements in Jerusalem where you know you're walking and it's slippery, and all of a sudden you know you think you have traction on your shoe and you just it's, you slip right out from under you. And so Josephus notes that when the centurion slipped on the stone pavement, he was quickly dispatched. yeah. In other words, he went down, and by the way. Roman soldiers spent much of their life marching great distances this mean, meant that the, the shoes had to be sturdy and even before the roman era breaking a sandal or breaking a shoe was a metaphor for weakness or defeat if your shoe you know if you're a soldier your shoes can't fail you in isaiah chapter 5 verse 27 this is hundreds of years before the roman empire isaiah writes quote no one will be weary or stumble among them. No one will slumber or sleep, nor will the belt on their loins be loose, nor the strap of their sandals be broken. When you read Isaiah and it says, nor the strap of their sandals be broken, it's an idiomatic expression, which means the journey that they start, the journey they will complete. And so it becomes a type and a picture of progress, progress. The gospel of peace is the good news that sinful human beings can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And so in verse um, 15, and having shod your feet with the preparation, the firm foundation, the paved road, if you will, of the gospel of peace. Here's the idea. The good soldier marches To the place where the enemy can be engaged. Your fight isn't against flesh and blood. You march to the place where people need to hear the gospel. You go to the place where people are hungry for the gospel. They're thirsty for the truth. They're empty in their life. They may or may not understand what it means to be a sinner. They may or may not understand the need for the gospel. But it is the gospel. So the Christian soldier marches to the place where the people can hear the gospel. If it's in your home or if it's at your work. Before we came to Jesus, we wanted to live for ourselves. We didn't care about God. We didn't care about God's plans. We were in a conflict, but God has caused the secession of the hostilities in Christ Jesus. And this is why it's called the good news. The good, this is the point that Paul is making. The point that Paul is making that according to the Bible, human beings are alienated against God. Our sin has left us broken, estranged from God, separate from God. The gospel is the news that God comes in the person of Jesus so that you could experience forgiveness and hope in Christ. And that's why it's called the gospel of peace. It's called the gospel of peace because you're no longer at war with God. And so now all of a sudden we begin to connect the dots. You mean sin is missing the mark with God, going off the path of God. It's antagonizing God. It's alienating God. It's offending his holiness and his righteousness. And so this is why it's called the gospel of peace. Peace has a lot of different meanings in the Bible. It can mean the absence of hostility, it can also mean the imposition of peace through a covenant or a treaty. We're told to live in peace with other Christians and even those who are outside of the faith. In 1 Thessalonians 5.13, it says, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. The gospel of peace brings The peace of God and peace with God. In John 13, 35, it says, By this all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, think about what we've learned. Satan is a liar. We need the truth. Satan is an accuser. We need righteousness. That's part of the point of the righteousness and having the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness. You see, the breastplate of righteousness isn't some righteousness because you go to church, because you read your Bible, because you did everything right. Righteousness, in this sense, is the righteousness that comes to you because of grace through Jesus Christ, the Lord. So that when Satan accuses you of being a jerk, Jesus goes, that's true. She is a jerk. He is a jerk. Did you see what he did? Yes. I died for that. Did you see what they said? What they did? There's plenty to be accused of, isn't there? And so when we play the role of the accuser, we're playing the role of Satan. And so if you want to be accepted by God on the basis of Christ's righteousness... You might want to extend that courtesy to everyone else in your life. Satan is a liar. We need the truth. Satan is an accuser. We need righteousness. Satan is a divider and a destroyer. So we need peace. We need the peace that comes from having a right relationship with God peace in our heart, when the believer walks in the way of the gospel, when the believer walks in the way of the gospel of peace, we find ourselves outside of the reach of Satan because the the gospel can't be, I'm saved by grace, through faith, and that, and myself. Uh, Imagine if the gospel is this, do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Yes. Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sins? Yes. Do you believe that his sacrifice is the satisfying solution to the problem of sin? Yes. And what else? I have to go to church. I have to be a good person. I have to be this way and that way. I have to knock on people's doors. I have to do this. I have to do that. I have to do this and I have to do that. And by the way, is a gospel of works a gospel of peace? It can't be. Because you know what is terrifying to every single Jehovah's Witness? Every single Mormon? Every single person who believes in works-based righteousness? Have I done enough? Did I go to church enough? Did I confess my sin enough? Did I read my Bible enough? Was I good enough? The Christian's feet should be cleansed, washed, and then shod with the gospel of peace. And you see, if the gospel of peace is not your gospel, if the gospel is something other than Jesus came into this world to die for sinners, that Jesus rose from the dead, that Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, If you have a gospel other than you're saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, then it is another gospel. It is an insufficient gospel. People who have a different gospel have pushed the gospel of peace away from them. We push the gospel of peace away either through sin or rebellion or disobedience or neglect. So how do you stand in the day of battle if you aren't walking in the truth, in personal purity or peace? Again, one of the worst things that can happen in a battle is you lose your your, your footing. It's every soldier's nightmare. It's to slip. It's like being a football player and you slip on the grass. It's every... Every soldier's nightmare to slip and go down. Every soldier's nightmare is to fall in battle, but there is one thing worse. There's one thing worse than falling in battle, and that's retreat. It's to bolt. It's to be a coward when the circumstance requires courage. And it's going to take great courage for you to affirm the gospel of peace. In a very real sense, you're gonna discover something as we go through this study. In every conceivable way, Jesus is our armor. Jesus is the truth we we, we wear. John 14, six, I am the way and the truth. What do you mean? Everything he says is true. Everything he does is true. Everything he affirms is true. Everything he condemns is true. Jesus is our righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Jesus is our peace, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. If you just turn a couple of pages in the other direction. For he himself is our peace. Who has broken down every wall who has made both one, who has broken down the middle wall of separation. Jesus is the truth we wear. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our peace. Jesus is the faithfulness that makes our faith possible, Galatians 2.20. Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Think about it. When we receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, We received our armor. We put it on. We never take it off. We trust his word. We wield the sword of the spirit. Elsewhere, Paul will write to the Romans and tell them to wake up. To cast off sin and put on the armor of light, he says in Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. When he uses this armor of light, he's speaking of the purity and the transparency and the power that it provides. Do you remember the tragic tale of King David? He took off his armor and went home. His greatest danger wasn't in the battlefield. It's when he went home. And he took off his armor. We are never far from Satan's devices. That's why you must never, no never, venture out without your armor. So just a couple of quick things before we close. Be on your guard against the following. Number one, when you begin to doubt God's love, his goodness, his power, his grace, his mercy, his sufficiency, you join Satan in attacking God's truthfulness. Number two, when you're depressed or anxious or hopeless, you join Satan in affirming or declaring that God can't be trusted. Number three, When Satan generates trouble through persecution, trial, pain, suffering, difficulty, he may tempt you to believe that Jesus doesn't care what happens to you. Why did I get the flu right now? Why do I have a cold? Why did I sprain my ankle? Why was I diagnosed with this or that? Why, Why in the most difficult circumstance that I'm facing, God knows that I need to be well right now. Well, guess what? That's what Satan will do. He will generate trouble by causing you to believe that whatever happens to you, no matter how significant or insignificant, that Jesus does care about you. Number four, when you're thrown into turmoil through doctrinal confusion or even outright lies, Satan may tempt you to believe something that will take you away from God's promises or God's word. Satan will always be the first to tell you Christ is not sufficient. The word of God is not sufficient. The provision that God has given to you is not sufficient. You need more. You need something else. You need someone else. And by the way, the believer who is ineffective in God's word will be ineffective in God's work. This is why much of our life is devoted To teaching you the Bible. They have BSF on Monday. They have ladies studies on Monday. They have men's studies on Monday. They have ladies and women's and student ministries all throughout the week. There's small groups. There's there's so many ways for you to get the word of God inside of you. Number five. Satan will attack you by hindering your fellowship with the Lord Jesus and other believers. Satan opposes Every faithful life and every effective ministry. So if you're going, well, wait a minute, I did everything right. I know. Isn't it great? (laughs) I did everything right. I know. Satan will oppose you when you do what's wrong, and he'll oppose you when you do what's right. Number six. Satan will attack by causing divisions. And I believe this is one reason why Jesus prayed so fervently for our unity. Then number seven, Satan will attack you by causing you to trust your feelings. Or to trust your resources. Rather than faith in God's resources. God's word. God's power. By his Holy Spirit. During the Middle Ages, before a squire was knighted, he would spend the night in a vigil in the castle chapel. He would spread out his armor before him. And then he would offer his soul to God. And this is the way we're to put on our armor. It's sometimes difficult to imagine it. But God is a God who will teach us war. War in combat. He wants to use our hands and our feet for the fight. Jesus is our armor. We have to allow the truth of his word to tighten our belt and we have to allow his righteousness to protect us from the accusations of the enemy and to protect from his fiery darts and then we have to allow the peace of God to cause us to stand fast in the gospel in the day of battle. And so now all of a sudden we understand it makes perfect sense to us that God would try to divide us, weaken us, that he would try to embrace a foreign righteousness other than Christ. So we're going to have um, communion now and Carolyn's going to come up, and and what I want you to do during this time of communion is uh, just take some time and think about what's been said. Obviously, I've given you a lot of information. I don't necessarily believe you're going to be able to absorb and recall everything that I've said, but I do want you to remember You must remember. You must remember. All of the resources necessary for you to participate in the fight are found in Christ. Truth. Right? Righteousness. Right? The gospel. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we reflect on what Jesus has done, Lord, as we desire to to submit to you and, and resist the devil, Lord, as Satan will almost certainly bring lies into our consciousness, Lord, we pray that we could find in the truth the answers the power and the provision that we need. And Lord, again, even as we participate in communion, Lord, we know that it is the sacrifice of Jesus. It is his shed blood on the cross of Calvary that provides the unique, the solitary solution to the problem of sin. There is only one way Lord, according to the Bible, that you have revealed to us that you are willing to take away our sin forever. And that's in the person of Jesus. And so, Lord, even as we reflect, as we pray, as we think about the sacrifice of Jesus, Lord, I pray that we would be renewed in our commitment that there is such a thing as truth, that Jesus is our righteousness. And the gospel has been given to us and entrusted to us so that we could give it to others so that other people could believe that their sin could be forgiven and that they could have a right relationship with God and that they could be in heaven forever. So we commit this time to you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name.